Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage towards the bottom of page 967. Again, today's passage is from 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, 1 through 11. Please stand with me as we honor God's holy and inerrant word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. And we pray now for help from your spirit as we seek to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. So may you bring glory to yourself and may you build up your church right now. And we pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, for those of you who weren't with us this past Sunday, we introduced last week a short series, a two-part series that we're doing on generosity. And as we explained, we're, we're timing it with this pledge campaign that's going on right now for our building project, the one that we've been telling you about uh, in the past few months. We've got this three-phased master plan for renovating and expanding these current facilities. And if you're not familiar with that, you don't know the details, I do encourage you to go visit the lobby table right after service or go to our website and you'll find out a lot more about what we're building, how much it's going to cost, how much and how you can get involved. So I do encourage you to find out more. Now, taken together... I, I will let you know that the cost of doing all three of those phases that, that are in the master plan, plus a very sizable cushion taken together, all of that comes out to $25 million. That, my friends, is our God-sized fundraising goal. Now, 
We've already had, have some funds in our capital reserves and in the designated building fund. I couple that with the pledges that were taken by many of our leaders back in May, we are already at 40% of our goal with $10.1 million already committed to this project. And now, friends, it's up to you to get involved, to make your own pledge, and to submit it by our January 31st deadline. And Lord willing, he's going to amaze us in all the sovereign ways in which he moves his people to give generously to this project. Now, today's message is going to be related to this pledge campaign. And by, by next week, uh, we are going to be in our planned series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. But after service today and after every uh, service this month during the announcement time, we're going to show you guys some videos that are going to highlight uh, what this new building uh, can be used for, how it, can be, how it can be stewarded in such a way to glorify God, to impact lives, and to advance gospel ministry here in our city and, of course, beyond. And the hope is that through a message like this, through those testimonials and those videos, that you're going to get excited about what God is doing, and you're going to get excited about your chance to enjoy the favor of taking part in this project. So today, friends, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this right here is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a specific church in light of specific events that happened between them about here in this chapter and in the next chapter, a specific fundraising effort that Paul has been promoting among churches that he planted. So what I'm trying to say here is that this text is about giving. It is about generosity. But let's be clear, there is a specific context here. And in this context, it's not about tithing to the church. This is not about, uh, this passage is not about any kind of regular giving that you might offer to the church. This is about a one-time special collection. It's uh, a pledge campaign, if you will, for a particular purpose. Not for a building project. In this case, in Paul's situation, it is for a relief effort. Uh, we learn that there is this special collection among Gentile churches initiated by Paul. And this collection from the Gentile churches is aimed at aiding the suffering saints in the Jerusalem church. There are poor and needy believers who need help. And so that really needs to be clarified up front. Uh, I just want you to be clear that I chose this text not because I, I think that our projects are the same. They're not. Ours is a building project. Theirs is a relief effort. So I chose this text not because of similarity in that regard, but I chose it because our motive behind our generosity, whether you're talking about a relief effort or a building project, the motive should be the same. It should be the grace of God. And that is what this text that we just read is all about. It's all about God's grace. Notice how Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, we want you to know, brothers, and stop right there, think about it, what does he want them to know? Like if his goal 
in this chapter is to get the Corinthian believers to give towards this collection for the saints in Jerusalem, then what is Paul going to write about? What does he want them to know? Does he want them to know how much these Macedonian believers gave? Does he want them to know just how much more mature those churches are, how much healthier they are compared to you? Is that what he wants them to know? No. What Paul wants them to know, first and foremost, is really not focused on what other people are doing, what other churches are doing. He wants them to focus on what God is doing. He wants them to know about the grace of God and how it's being poured out. Look there, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, that Greek word there for, for grace, the word charis, that actually shows up five separate times here in this text. I told you, this text is all about God's grace. In verse 1, we just saw it right there, as we just read. In verse 4, in your English translation, it probably doesn't say grace. It says favor, if you're using the ESV. But literally, that is grace, the same word. In verses 6 to 7, you see it there when Paul speaks of this act of grace. And later on in verse 9, when referring to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace is the main theme here. Now, what the churches in Macedonia did, as we're going to see, is, is pretty amazing. It's pretty inspirational. But what we see Paul concerned about, what we see Paul focused on, is not focusing on the Macedonians per se, but we're going to see the most significant aspect of, of their generosity in, in his mind is not the amount, it's not even their attitude. The most important thing is what generated that attitude that led to them giving that amount. That's, what's Paul, that's what Paul wants them to know. And of course it is the grace of God. So while Paul does point to the Macedonians as an example of surprising generosity, and he does that in order to, to inspire the Corinthians to fulfill their pledge, the whole point here is that Paul is most emphatic about the underlying grace of God. And so that, my friends, is why I think this is such a relevant text for us in our context. Yes, we have different projects before us, but what we share in common is that much like the Corinthian church, We've made some plans, and some of us have already made pledges. And now what we, need, what we need is motivation to finish the job. We need motivation to complete the project. Like the Corinthians, we can learn a whole lot about, uh, we can learn a whole lot from the example of the Macedonians. But friends, we are only going to be moved and inspired to give like the Macedonians if the grace of God is similarly given to us. So we are so desperate for that grace. Now, as we walk through the text, I want to make three observations. And if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. You'll see an outline. These are the three key observations. First, we're going to see a sensitive appeal to give. Second, a surprising overflow of generosity. And third, a stimulus to finish what we started. So that's where we're going. Let's first... Begin by noticing Paul's particular approach to bringing up the issue of money and, and this giving towards a relief effort. What we're going to see first, coming from the apostle, is a pastorally sensitive appeal to give. 
Now, Paul has to approach this this issue with care due to recent events in the Corinthian church that have to do with him. You see, previously, there had been a falling out between Paul and the Corinthians. Things have improved significantly, as I'll explain in a second. But Paul is is wise and discerning enough to know that now is not the time to simply start issuing commands for them to give. It's not the time to just exert apostolic authority. And that's why you're going to see him emphasize, if you look down in verse 8, he's not issuing a command to give. He says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. In other words, his appeal for them to fulfill their pledge is, is not to suggest that, hey, if you do this, this is how you show your obedience to me. No, he's saying, no, this is, this is rather how you prove the genuineness of your love for me as your apostle. I'm not telling you what to do here. I'm showing you why to do it and why it would make such a difference. That's what he's doing here. Now, to better understand this unique relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church, I I need to give you guys some background. So if you were, and we are going to read through 1 Corinthians together, at the end of his first letter to them in chapter 16, Paul informs them of his plans to visit Corinth. After he travels through the region of Macedonia, he plans on coming. And there in 1 Corinthians 16, he just simply tells them what to do. There he just issues a direct apostolic command. This is chapter 16, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. Here's the command. I'm the apostle. I'm telling you this is what you need to do. That's what he says there. And he goes on to instruct them on how to prepare their gift for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 16.10 that Paul is sending Timothy to go on ahead to prepare the collection before he arrives. But when Timothy gets to Corinth, he discovers a church in turmoil. You see, false teachers had infiltrated the church. They had turned the people's affections away from Paul. They have been pointing out his weaknesses, pointing out all of the suffering he's been experiencing and saying that that's evidence that he's not really blessed. He's not really sent of God. That he he is not spirit-filled like we are. That's what they were doing, and the church was buying it. So So when Paul hears this, when Timothy returns with this report, Paul is, 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 is going to make these sudden changes of plan. And so what he, what he does is that he suddenly changes his plan. Um, instead of going through Macedonia, he goes straight to Corinth in order to confront this open rebellion. And then he plans on traveling back to, to the region of Macedonia. And so he uh, then tells them that after I go back to Macedonia... I'm also going to then come back around and I'm going to make one more trip to Corinth before I take this collection to Jerusalem. So he's kind of planning for two more visits to Corinth. And this initial visit, going straight there to deal with this issue, it turns out to be a very painful visit for Paul and the Corinthians because the church essentially rejects him. So what he hears about is true. They have turned against him. Now, instead of disciplining them right then and there, Paul bore the shame, and he simply left. 
And he decided he's not going to make that next visit that he had planned. And instead, he's going to send them a letter. He sends a letter through Titus. This letter, which some uh, would call 3 Corinthians, because it's a, it's a third letter to the Corinthians. Well, actually, it should be more like 1.5 Corinthians because it was written between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Uh, but this letter is now lost to history. We don't have this letter, and the church has never considered this letter God-inspired scripture. But this was a tearful, painful, hard letter for Paul to write. And he makes reference to it here in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So remember that, that third visit he was planning? He scratched it. He says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So it was a firm letter. It was still a loving letter. And it was a hard, painful letter. But that letter had its intended effect. It grieved the majority of the church members in Corinth, and it led them to repentance. So listen later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. This is Paul saying, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I, I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So it's the repentance that resulted from all that is what overjoys Paul. So when Titus returns, he relays to Paul the result of their godly grief. He is just rejoicing. He's overjoyed in the Lord. So now he writes 2 Corinthians after hearing that they have repented. And, he, and, and this, this letter here, 2 Corinthians, is written by Paul in hope that 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 repentance of theirs is genuine, that they truly have renewed their love for him. And at this point in the letter, he goes ahead and raises the issue of that pledge he had talked about in his previous letter, the pledge that he had discussed with them before about the collection to the saints. He wants them to fulfill that pledge. And he presents the fulfillment of that pledge as a very tangible way to bear fruit in keeping with your repentance and to prove the genuineness of your love for God, for me, for the saints. Fulfill your pledge, and that's what it will demonstrate. Since, you know, he hasn't seen them. He hasn't seen them personally since that last painful visit, so he's not sure if their reported repentance is real and if their relationship is truly restored. And so that's why, as a wise and caring pastor, he treads carefully and sensitively avoiding any direct commands. But in this chapter and in the next, instead of giving direct commands, what we're going to see him do is to issue out, to lay out principles. Principles for them to prayerfully consider. Rather than just telling them what to do, Paul wants the Corinthians to decide what they should do for themselves, what they should do that would be mature and godly, what should you do? Well, church, I want you to know that it's also the desire of your pastors and your elders to make our appeals 
when it comes to this building project that we're talking about, we want to make it with the same level of pastoral sensitivity as Paul. And that's not because, you know, there's some beef between us uh, that, 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 that needs to be reconciled. You know, we're not making this appeal in order to test your love for us. No, really, this is a test for you. It's a test for you. There's a self-examination that each of us can experience through this pledge campaign. You see, if, if we just laid out bare commands, telling you what to do, bare commands for you to follow, if we just guilt trip you, or we just, you know, place a lot of social pressure on you to give, you wouldn't really have a chance to test your own hearts. You wouldn't really learn much about yourself. It's really only when you're given a choice to freely give or to freely refrain from giving. Only then will you know what's really in your heart, what has a hold of your heart, what what your heart priorities are. So as your pastor, I I try to resist the tendency to to grip tightly, to, 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 to not let go, to continue steering you by the sheer force of will and authority. I know that's that's not a healthy thing to do. As a father with a toddler at home who, who loves to ride her bike, even though she doesn't know how to ride a bike, you're gonna see me with a tight grip on that bike right now. I mean, I'm not letting go, and I am just steering her wherever I want her to go. And right now, she's just having a blast. She loves it. But I know that eventually I'm going to have to let go to actually see if she's matured, if she knows how to actually balance herself and ride that thing. And I would actually be stunting her development. I, I would be ultimately stifling the joy of riding a bike if I just refused to, to ever let go and to release control. And so in the same way, your pastors and elders are not going to shepherd you with the rod in this particular matter over a pledge. We're not going to command or demand anything of you. Like Paul what we want to do is to lay out some biblical principles for you to consider, to prayerfully consider. What we see in this text is Paul emphasizing that how you handle your money, how you respond to projects and efforts aimed at helping others or or advancing gospel ministry, that your response, that is a good barometer revealing the state of your heart, proving how much you trust God versus how much you trust money. And so that's why we want to make a fundraising appeal to which you can freely respond. And in the end, what we hope is that you learn something about yourself. And what, of course, we really hope you discover is that the grace of God has also been given to you to free you from the love of money to free you from the love of keeping money just for yourself and to change your heart. So now what you love to do is to give it away. Give it away to causes that glorify God and do good to others. That's what we hope you learn through this campaign. It's that same grace, of course, the grace that was given to the Macedonian churches that produced among them a a surprising overflow of generosity. And so this leads now to our second observation. 
surprising overflow of generosity. The Macedonian believers, they were, as we're told, poor in riches, but they were rich in generosity. Poor in riches, but rich in generosity. They were beset with afflictions, but abounding in joy. Now, friends, those paradoxes, they can really only be explained by this grace of God given to them. So let me just read verses 1 to 2 again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, to really appreciate God's grace, we really need to talk about the Macedonian churches and their particular situation. Notice in verse 2 how they're described as dealing with extreme poverty. Not just poverty, but extreme poverty. And that Greek word for extreme is the same, uh, is, is the same word where we derive uh, the, the, the word for a bathysphere. If you don't know what a bathysphere is, it's those, those large, spherical, deep-sea submersibles that you would have seen, like, you know, Jack Cousteau kind of days, where, where they, uh, you know, in the, in the early 20th century, they would use these submersibles to explore the bottom of the ocean. So when Paul says here that the Macedonians are extremely poor, I mean, just imagine them being bottom of the sea, deep in poverty. That's how bad off they are. And it's probably explained by the severe test of affliction that they were experiencing. You see, Macedonia is a region, um, and it's, it's basically like, like we would understand, it's like northern Greece right now. Uh, but that region contains cities that you're probably familiar with, Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea, these are all cities that Paul had visited and started churches. And we learn in either the book of Acts or in the particular letters that he wrote to these churches that they were experiencing severe persecution. That these believers were being socially ostracized. They were being pushed out into the margins. Because they, and, and that led to them being in, in a severe economic disadvantage compared to their neighbors. Because as Christians... They were viewed as seditious. They were viewed as traitors and, and rebels to the Roman Empire, to the Roman Emperor. They wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. And so they were, they were pushed out in many ways within the economy. And so that's why they were suffering in many ways economically. But that's why their behavior in this situation is so strange. These churches were simultaneously experiencing both an abundance of joy on one hand and, ex and extreme poverty on the other hand brought about by severe affliction. And somehow, the combination of those two very different things overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And that, that phrase there, a wealth of generosity, it simply means that generosity was their wealth. Money wasn't their wealth. Generosity was their wealth. Like I said, they may have been poor in riches, but they were rich in generosity. Now, I know none of that makes sense to us. None of it makes sense if we're honest. 
Because when we think about God giving us his grace, if he were to pour out grace upon you, you would imagine, you would picture, that means lifting your afflictions. You would think that means resolving your problems, pulling you out of the pits of poverty. Isn't that what God's grace is supposed to do? But as Paul goes on to explain later on in 2 Corinthians 12, where he addresses his own personal thorns, his own personal affliction, he goes on to explain that God's all-sufficient grace doesn't necessarily change your circumstances, but it certainly changes your heart. You begin to act strange like these Macedonians. Your circumstances may still be dire and desperate, but your heart is now determined to give to the Lord and to his work, no matter the cost. According to verse 3, these Macedonian churches, Paul says they gave not just, according, not just according to their means, he says they gave beyond their means. And they did so without any prompting on Paul's part. In, in fact, in, according to verse 5, he didn't even expect them to participate in this relief effort for poor Christians in Jerusalem. Because he knew they were poor Christians in Macedonia. What do you expect from them? They got nothing. They're poor. Why am I expecting them to give to the other poor people? That's what Paul was initially thinking. But we're told that they begged Paul for the favor, or literally the grace, of participating in this collection. Look at verses 3, verses 3 to 4 again. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What a reversal here. It's not the apostle. It's not the pastor of the church doing the begging, asking people to give. No, it's the church members. They're the ones doing the begging. They're the ones begging for the gracious privilege to give, to participate. That's what happens when you are rich in generosity. If generosity is your wealth, this is what you do. You, you want to be involved. You want to give. Friends, that's so inspiring. At the same time, so convicting. Because the Macedonians did not use their poverty as an excuse not to participate. Not having much money was no reason for them not to give. And that's so convicting because that's the very reason why many of us don't give. And why we don't participate in pledge campaigns like the ones one, one, the one we're doing. Perhaps you, you're still in school. Perhaps you're still early in your career. Perhaps you still have debt that you need to pay off. And so you tell yourself that right now you're just too poor to participate. I'll let the older and richer and more established members of the church take care of it. But how different are these Macedonian believers? They wouldn't have thought like that. They would have been begging for the chance to participate. Paul, don't pass us up. Paul, don't dismiss us. No, we want to be a part of this. We want to give. I'll be straight with you. If you're disinclined towards generosity when you have very little, then there's very little chance of you suddenly becoming generous when down the road you have a lot. It's not going to happen. 
Because in the end, it's not about what's in your wallet and how much is in there. It's about what's in your heart. Let's say you have little money right now. But if you have a wealth of generosity in your heart so that you give generously out of the little that you do have, then down the road, if the Lord blesses you with more, you are still going to be that generous person. But now you're going to have much more to be generous with. So the point is, don't wait to start giving. Don't wait. Start now, even when you don't have a lot, and it will become a habit of the heart. It will become a habit of your generous heart. That's the principle. So friends, I I know it's still hard to do. I I, I know it's easier said than done. I, I know you're still not sure if you could ever be generous like these Macedonian believers. But I hope you understand that they didn't become this way. They didn't become generous by focusing on money, focusing on on money management and and uh, financial stewardship. They weren't focusing on money. No, notice that they focused on God. And generosity was a natural byproduct. Look look, Look at verse five, and you'll see this for yourself. Look at verse five. Paul explains there where their unexpected generosity came from. And this, he says, not as we expected. I didn't expect this generosity. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the reason they could be so generous is because they have already dedicated themselves first and foremost to the Lord. I mean, just think about it. It's easy to give your money away when you've already given your life away to the Lord. If you've already surrendered your life to God, then surrendering surrendering your money to him is a natural byproduct. That's just what comes out of you. So the natural question, of course, is to ask yourself whether or not you've surrendered to God. Is God your Lord? Is he your master? And to To test yourself, just ask yourself this question. Who has the right to tell you what to do with your money? Who has the right to tell you what to do with your money? And if your first instinct is to think, no one can tell me what to do with my money. It's it's mine. Well, then, it looks like at this point, there's little chance of you being as generous as the Macedonians. You're going to need to surrender your life to the Lord first. Now, perhaps you're going to need a good reason to do that. Perhaps you're going to need a strong stimulus to surrender. And so that leads to our third observation, our final point found in verses 8 to 11. Here we see Paul giving the Corinthians a strong stimulus, especially to finish what they started. See, earlier in verse 6, he explains that he sent Timothy, I mean, not Timothy, Titus, back to Corinth. Uh, and Titus was, was likely the bearer of 2 Corinthians. He was probably the one bringing this letter to them. And he was there to help them complete the collection that they had previously started. He was essentially there to help them finish their pledge. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you 
who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So a year ago, they had made, the Corinthians had made a pledge to give towards this collection for the suffering saints. Now, Paul says, it's time to fulfill it. You need to finish what you started. But again, Paul's not going to give any commands here. Instead, he's going to give motivation. He's going to give them a stimulus. He's going to do that by pointing to two reference points. First, to the sacrificial earnestness of the Macedonians. And second, to the sacrificial grace of Christ. Look at verse 8 again. I say this not as a command, but to prove here by the earnestness of others, that's referring to the Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. So Paul's hoping that the earnestness of the Macedonians to want to give generously in spite of their poverty, he hopes that will serve as an inspiration to motivate the Corinthians to do the same thing and to fulfill their pledge. Fulfilling their pledge, he says, is going to be a clear fruit of repentance. This is going to be a clear sign of your genuine love for for Paul and for all the saints. But while the sacrificial earnestness of the Macedonians was certainly going to be inspirational, Paul knows that the greater motivation to stimulate anyone to give freely and generously is when you receive by faith the free and generous sacrifice of Christ. So look at verse 9. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, might, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So, if the sacrifice of the Macedonians, which they accomplished in such poverty, if that was so inspirational, then how much more so? the sacrifice of Christ and of what he has done for us, especially when you consider the extreme rock-bottom depths of poverty into which he dove. Those words there in verse 9, though he was rich, that is referring to Jesus' pre-existence, his eternal pre-existence before his incarnation, before He came into this earth. He always existed in eternal glory. For all eternity past, he was glorified and exalted to the highest by all the angels, singing around his throne, holy, holy, holy. He enjoyed all the privileges of the high king of heaven. That was what he had. Those were his riches. And yet it says here, for your sake, he became poor. And that becoming poor there is Paul's way of referring to the incarnation and the subsequent humiliation of the crucifixion. Jesus emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a shameful cross. And why would he do that? Why would he go to such extremes? Why would he stoop so low? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
so that you who believe would receive all the benefits of his crucifixion and of the atonement that that accomplished. Now, this becoming rich, us becoming rich, these riches that we have, that could refer to our heavenly inheritance. That could refer to the treasures in heaven that we look forward to. But, you know, in the context of 2 Corinthians, those riches that Christ gave us would probably more accurately refer to the righteousness of God. Because we go back a few chapters in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you see that exchange being described there in chapter 5, and in our text as well, in chapter 8, verse 9, there's another exchange being made. I think there's a connection here. So Paul's saying, because Christ impoverished himself, we are now rich in God's righteousness. And it's through this gift of righteousness we are now reconciled with God. That was his point in chapter 5, which would suggest that what this means is that having a right relationship with God is where our true wealth lies. That's what truly makes you rich. Your real riches is in a relationship with God. A right relationship based on the righteousness of Christ given to you freely by faith. That's what makes you rich. Paul's whole point here is that Jesus voluntarily impoverished himself in this way to enrich others, which includes you if you're a Christian. So now, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Give voluntarily. Give sacrificially. Give until it hurts. Impoverish yourself, in a sense, in order to enrich others. That's what the Macedonians did for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And of course, that's what Christ did for us. So church, would you join me? Would you join me in praying that the same grace of God that was given to the churches in Macedonia would be generously poured out upon us, moving all of us to demonstrate a surprising and generous, a surprising and unexpected generosity. Let's pray for God to move, to move through his grace in such a way. For those of you who have very little, may you be changed by the grace of God so that we hear of you begging for the favor of taking part in this building project. I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be amazing to hear of children in our midst begging their parents for the privilege to participate and to make their own pledge? I mean, that would be... That would be an amazing act of grace to see that happening. And for those of you who have plenty, may you be so changed by God's grace that you follow in your Lord's example and you voluntarily impoverish yourself to enrich others. I know our fundraising goal is huge. I know it seems unattainable, but who are we to put a cap on God's grace? Who are we to question the all-sufficient grace of our God? His grace is sufficient for all our needs. And so if he grants us that grace, nothing is impossible. 
Nothing is unattainable. And we can finish what we started. So by God's grace, let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text, for this reminder of your goodness and grace to us. We just pray now, Lord, that you will humble us and you will lead each of us to first and foremost surrender ourselves to you, to surrender our lives to you so that you may do with our lives and with our resources whatever you will for your glory, for your name. We pray all that in that name. Amen.